1: My job, at least last season, was to be in hell. And so I had to find ways to do that for myself that I found very difficult and painful, and God knows I didn't want to do it anymore. And then I meet Kendall. That's when I understand what he's going through.
2: It's Roger Bennett, and this is HBO's Succession Podcast. My guest today is the haunted hip-hop-slinging, dead-eyed, try-hard heir apparent to your favourite media cruise and theme park empire, a broken robot who lives to self-sabotage his own attempts to grapple for control of Waystar Royco, to grapple for control of his life, to be honest, against that manipulative, sadistic, patriarch father of his. A techno-Gatsby character fuelled by hunger for power, betrayal and ketamine. The CEO of Pain and crestfallen Despair, played by a man who's known to disappear into every performance he gives and has been called an actor's actor, capable of unfurling some of the most nuanced committed work on television. He's the Theon Greyjoy of Succession, the real Walking Dead. Welcome to the pod, Jeremy <laughs> Strong.
1: That is a mighty introduction, thank you.
2: Jeremy, I revere you. There is a Tracy Chapman's album worth of sadness in Kendall Roy. He's a remarkable amalgam of total arrogance and total insecurity, sees his father both as a false god and a deity he wants to worship. Is Kendall the manifestation of the most profound question every kid must answer, the extent to which they want to become the person their parents expect? or actualize as an independent human being?
1: That's the crux of the question and of the struggle, and certainly where Jesse is hanging the entire show. I went to the writer's room, which is a sort of squalid little room in Brixton, <laughs> a couple of years ago before we started. The very first thing at the top of the dry erase board was this question, can you escape family? Can you escape legacy? Can you get out from underneath? that shadow or does it become the sort of pole star that is always exhibiting this sort of gravitational force and that defines your life. For Kendall, the relationship I have with my father it is the pole star and the dark star that I'm orbiting. No matter when I'm trying to get free of it, I'm still defined by opposition. In a way, it's a love story between these characters. You know, it's a sort of pathogenic relationship. It exerts this something akin to kryptonite over kendall so he both is driven by an almost oceanic need for his father's validation and approval and love and at the same time his father scrambles his signal he can never be his own man when he's in the tractor beam of that
2: he's a titan externally but one that can be reduced to a stuttering small child by the presence of his father, that kryptonite. You built a career with scene-stealing roles in real history epics like Selma and Lincoln, and you met Adam McKay, the executive producer of Succession, when you worked on The Big Short. I'm imagining the Brixton Room occurred around them because he showed you a script. You were initially drawn to Roman, Kieran Culkin's (laughs) part, but then Jesse Armstrong, the show creator, nudged you towards, and thank God he did, Kendall Roy, because I believe it took you multiple times to reread the part before it hit you. You've said, I had a blind spot because the character was in a way too close to me. Your words, there's a lot of me that's not like Kendall, but in terms of the DNA in the engine, the kind of primal needs of the character, they're quite close to the bone.
1: I've always sort of seen myself as a character actor and the kind of work that I'm most, excited by and inspired by is really chameleonic acting and transformational acting. And so the roles that kind of come shooting out of me like a rocket when I read them on the page are roles that feel like I'm going to have to somehow travel beyond myself a great distance in order to really render and embody this character which usually involves changing yourself on a cellular level. And I think the thing about Kendall that frightened me was with this character, there's nowhere to hide. It felt like the summons for me as an actor was in a way to approach it fundamentally differently than I've approached other character work in my life. You know, there's very little that's embellished or embroidered or adorned in this character. You know, I can't hide behind a sort of different voice or energy or characterization, all this stuff that Olivier talks about in his autobiography. He talks about something called theatrical courage, which is always something that I felt really excited by. And it's about committing to a certain size and audacity of a performance like you do in the theater, but doing it on film. Kendall felt like in a way the opposite of that. It's very internal. It's in the writing in a plate tectonic kind of way but it's not on the page. And so the challenge with this role is to really inhabit it. I knew that as an actor, Kendall just needed to come from the base of my spine. I needed to internalize the writing and internalize the role in as deep a way as I knew how, and then try and embody it fully. You do a massive amount of work, you prepare in a really extreme way. With this role, and maybe acting should always be this, it's really just been about showing up and telling the truth.
2: You talk about courage, and you talk about the extent to which you prepared for this role. I mean, yeah, you're bookish by nature, you turn to all the big bios on America's major media titans, but it's the details about you that I love, Jeremy. You decided Kendall, bro that he is, was really into Bruce Lee. I mean, is it true that you tried to learn Kung Fu's The Mabu Punch in four days off YouTube videos? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I did. I tried to learn the mad blue punch. Thank you. Wow, Roger. I'm so, I'm so moved. You know, I started reading some Bruce Lee books and hanging up Bruce Lee quotes and the writing is an outline in a sense. And your job is to really fill it in and do this really filigreed work and make it specific and make it personal. And I think you have to have a personal experience. You have to bring something of yourself, or I do at least, where you really feel like everything's on the line, you're at risk. One of the wonderful things about collaborating with Jesse Armstrong and this room of writers, it's this sort of wonderful open channel where they'll serve a volley in my direction. I get to build on it and rather than feeling as some writers and some directors can feel a sense of territoriality or ownership, I think they just feel like it's additive. I read something before I started Succession that had an effect on me in my life, and I think in my work. And it was something that Jung had said. He said that only that which is really ourselves has the power to heal. And I don't know, it just kind of stopped me in my tracks. It's not really about acting, but in a fundamental sense, it is. The ideal for me became not acting. Don't perform at all and only give an audience what is really yourself. Something vital and real in you collides with the scene and with the writing. I read an interview with Dustin Hoffman once and he said that when he would read something, his two questions were, how is this character in trouble and what do they need? And that really activated me. For Kendall, he's in deep, deep trouble. There's trouble in every direction. There's the internal struggle, that he is sort of endlessly locked in and endlessly falling short of the mark. And there's the struggle for dominance in the professional arena. And there's the struggle with his father to be the man that he thinks his father wants him to be. That makes me have a lot of empathy for him. And then his need, the vector of his need is so sharp and so clear to me that it sort of carries you through these 10 episodes. If you can viscerally connect with what a character needs, then you can walk into a scene and just let it fly.
2: Your immersive methodology. I think Bruce Lee himself was probably channeling Carl Jung when he said, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once. I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. Because that's you, Jeremy Strong. The Mabu Punch Kung Fu was just the thin end of the wedge in terms of how you give yourself over entirely to whomever you're playing, a method. When I read about it, I just think of immense sacrifice. And in Kendall Roy's case, True Suffering, you call your style hugging the cactus because you embrace the challenges of your character, needles and all.
1: I guess I feel a deep sense of responsibility Rilke said that all great art is a product of having been in danger. The way I understand that is because that's my aim, is to be part of and serve something that might have the chance to be real art, which to me means have a chance to have a profound effect on a viewer, to move them, to give them a cathartic or transformational experience or just a glimpse into what it's like for another person and their human experience. It's not about television or film in any medium, I think it's about what is the artist willing to give to this? How much are they wagering of themselves and how much in a sense are they endangering themselves? I guess I feel like if I'm not doing that, I'm not going far enough. It's a lot to ask people to sit down and watch something. And I guess I know When I see a piece of work, I can feel on some level when an actor is really committed to it, which doesn't necessarily translate into good results. God knows there are plenty of times where I leave a scene feeling like I just didn't get there. But I do think the price of admission into having the possibility of good work is sort of everything. I have to feel like I'm putting everything on this altar, and then at a certain point, you just hope that it catches fire. And you don't know if it will or not, but it certainly won't, unless you've, like, skated out onto thin ice somehow.
2: I mean, you talk about your acting as it's important to offer yourself as a blood sacrifice, your word. Talk about catching fire. Kendall Roy is some kindling. I mean, he's a flailing, divorced, alone, drowning. He's killed a man. He's fighting his father, his siblings, a recovering addict, and you live in that mindset for months at a time. That is that is such a heavy place. You are risking, or at least sacrificing, your normality. For us, the audience, Jeremy.
1: Thank you, Roger. I mean, it really means this. It's uh, no, I th- I'm affected by, the, by that. I think, I guess, I feel like that's the task of the actor. It's also the joy of the actor. Jesse and I were talking about Andre Agassiz's autobiography, Open. Yes. Which is just really one of the great books. His father was a brutally hard man and, you know, made a ball machine when Andre was a kid called the Dragon. And the dragon would fire one million balls a year at this poor kid, seven year old Andre Agassiz, in their backyard in Las Vegas in desert heat because he wanted him to be the best in the world. Andre Agassi had this really complicated relationship to tennis, as, as is sort of famously known. He hated tennis, but he also couldn't escape it. And in a way, tennis was his father. So there's a lot of things that are in the groundwater as far as our show and me thinking about Kendall. But one of the things that Agassi writes is that even though what he describes as the pain of playing, there are moments where he hits the ball in a way that feels as close to perfect as is possible. When he hits the ball, in this sort of golden ratio kind of way, there's a feeling of transcendence and oneness and just a sense maybe of satisfaction. It might not even be more than that, but there are moments that I have, if I feel like I've saturated the rain clouds enough with all of the raw materials in myself, I make it sound like it's a theorem. It's not a theorem. I have no idea how acting works. It's a mystery to me. But I know that I trust myself enough at this point to sort of be in the dark about it.
0: Yes. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well, whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project
2: It is dark, and to the other actors, it's even darker than maybe even you feel. Alan Ruck, who plays Connor, he's described your approach. He said, Jeremy's been asked to live in hell, Four weeks at a time. And when you're in character, you keep a distance from the rest of the cast on set. You've said you do this so, quote, you'll only meet each other in the ring, especially Logan Roy, Brian Cox, of whom you've said, God almighty, when you're in the ring with him, you get everything you need because he completely embodies that character and can be very terrifying.
1: He's a primal force of an actor. There's not a lot of them out there. Brian is someone who, in a different life, I could have imagined him in Dundee, like in a bar fight, smashing a glass. Oh, Begbie. Yeah, he's dangerous. Danger is a quality that I think great actors possess. He's certainly dangerous in the scene. And I think he's got a sense of danger outside of the scene as well. He's also one of the most tender-hearted and kind Actors I've ever worked with and so part of it for me is about doing whatever is possible to maintain a sense of belief In the circumstances and in the dynamics of the world that we're in and anything that doesn't support that I Find is a distraction and also can dilute The potency of what the writing alone can give you I need to believe in the reality of what I'm doing and so in a way I think Alan's right. I mean, I think my job, at least last season, was to be in hell. And so I had to find ways to do that for myself that I found very difficult and painful. And God knows I didn't want to do it anymore. And then I meet Kendall. That's when I understand what he's going through. Or begin to understand
2: you embody that in the script but also in those details you talk about you know when when kendall crashed his car into the river you demanded to have ice water thrown on you for every take when he falls into a meth hole you put yourself into that psychedelic frame of mind the clothing you've said you spend hours picking exactly the right pair of long van sneakers with the wardrobe designers who came up with the idea for Kendall's perpetual love of big headphones, a brilliant symbol of his sadness, his isolation, and the fact that spending money on elite gadgets can make you so less cool in real life than in (laughs) your own imagination.
1: (laughs) I think I'm pretty involved in all of that stuff, you know, those headphones and certainly the wardrobe. It's all part of the canvas. Those details I find incredibly important. I remember when I worked on Lincoln, I was talking with the costume designer, she was pointing out that Daniel had had Day Lewis. his cuffs made especially longer so as to give the appearance of a more gaunt, the frame that Lincoln was described to have had. I remember just being really struck by that commitment to specificity and detail, which is I think part of mastery. And you know, mastery, is the goal for anyone working in the arts. It's an elusive goal that you probably never reach. And that's kind of one of the wonderful things about it. You get to be a beginner or a novice for your whole life. You know, even that stuff you talked about, the accident. I knew that I needed to be in an extremely harrowing, pressurized place for the week that we shot that sequence. And I didn't really know how to achieve that other than to find ways to create that for myself. And so that involved, yeah, whatever it took, just immersing in these frozen lakes before takes, and that's where you meet the character. It costs you something, and I would feel personally like I was shortchanging the possibility of the material if I wasn't willing to pay that cost.
2: It's the Andrea Gassi transcendent moment when you hit the ball perfectly off the gut of your tennis racket. You know, on the internet, people spend hours fantasizing about what music Kendall's listening to.
1: Really? (laughs) Music I find very penetrating. I've used music on this show. Again, it's a testament to the creative team. Our directors, Jesse Armstrong himself, most of all, I've asked the sound department many times to lug out these giant speakers. And if I know that something is MOS, or if I know that they can edit out the sound, I'll play music during takes or before takes because it can evoke something. You know, I'm quite a cerebral person by nature. So a lot of the work that I have to do is just to get out of that and enter Ezra Pound calls it your belly mind. I need to get into that and music of course helps you do that. The very beginning of the second season, I'm in Iceland and I'm in this sort of spa. And we didn't shoot that until about four months in to filming the second season. It had been what felt like a lifetime since we filmed the accident in England. And so I had to find a way to just get immediately back to that place in myself, the anguish of that place, the extremity of that place, the sense of being on a complete precipice of that place, and there was certain music that I'd been listening to when we shot the sequence in Ledbury, England, which I could then use again.
2: It's got to be Johnny Cash hurt on repeat,
1: right? <laughs> you know, a lot of it's classical. Some of it was Penderecki music with these really sort of harrowing strings. There's a piece he wrote about Hiroshima that is terrible to listen to. It's beautiful, but it's terrifying. You turn that up loud enough in your headphones and there's a silent scream that is immediately produced in you.
2: silent scream.
1: In a way, it felt like that silent scream needed to be, that note needed to be held and sustained for the duration of the entirety of the second season up until a point where it no longer did. And that's determined by the writing.
2: You've got the mindset, you've got the look, you've got the language. Yeah, 50% of his lines are...
1: Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, yep, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh-huh, okay.
2: The way he calls his executives dude, and describes an acquisition as the shiz. Yeah. The details, the details, the details. When you finish the series, I mean, never mind that, when you finish a scene, like getting stuck in traffic on the way to a crucial board meeting vote, or when you sink into your father's arms, you've described how emotionally shattered you are. You said, I just felt like I've been in Hades for the past few months. It's been like the revenant. Oh, that bear scene, Jeremy. Can you watch yourself as Kendall Roy? Or is it too painful, like watching yourself live out trauma? The funny
1: thing is I don't even really see it as myself. I think the greatest joy for me is to disappear into these things. And in a sense, with this, because I've been working on it for so long, I do kind of feel like I leave myself behind and I enter into Kendall and Kendall feels as real to me as my own self and my own life.
2: So do your memories of playing Kendall feel as real to you as your memories of life lived as Jeremy Strong?
1: They do, because I think I had real experiences in those scenes and I was affected by them. And it's a mixture of a lot of things. It's what Kendall's going through, but it's also what I'm, as an actor, I'm going through. My own fear, there's a lot of that. The pressure of carrying an HBO show, the pressure of being given the chance finally after a lifetime of working towards something like this. It's like the US Open, the French Open, the Australian Open and Wimbledon all in one. The stakes couldn't be higher. So there is a great sense of the crucible of that as well as what Kendall's experiencing. So there have been scenes where Whatever the emotion of the scene is, there might not be any at all. There's not a lot of release in this character. He's very, very held. Again, I've been reading Agassiz, I'm thinking about it. He talks about racket tension and the way he strings his rackets. There's a real sense of that tension in playing this character. So there are times where I will walk away from a scene and just go sit in a broom closet I have to let it out a little bit.
2: We've all been there, Jeremy. We've all been in that broom closet. But you think about that broom closet, and to me, that's your sacrifice. For two seasons now, you've lived the complete inward collapse of a human being. In the show, Naomi Pierce warns Kendall that Logan, quote, only loves the broken you. The broken me, yeah. The writers, it seems, only love the broken you. When you read the scripts, are you like, pain, suffering, self-destruction. Yes, this is the right trajectory for the character we've created. Oh, are you ever like, why are you just doing this to me? Just give me one win, man. <laughs>
1: I'm like, fuck, man. Jesse and I speak before the season. I know what the arc and the broad strokes of it are going to be. I need to know that so that I can, on a dramaturgical level, at least put some scaffolding in so I know where the turning points are and how to build to where it builds to. You know, there are other people on the show that I envy because they're having the time of their lives, you know, (laughs) that is denied to this character. He is a collapsed human being. Sometimes I feel like we're just going through the titles of Jared Diamond's books, you know, Collapse and Upheaval. And as much as those things land heavily on me, and it's a heavy, heavy weight to carry. That's what I want. I want the heavyweight stuff.
2: Watching Kendall Roy try and be the best, worst version of himself, it is the heart of succession. He's a character, Kendall, seemingly with no bottom, like Arthur Miller's Willie Loman if he was born richer beyond his wildest dreams. One of the most gut-wrenching scenes, sadder, sadder than a Smith song, was where Logan forces Kendall to visit the parents of the waiter he'd killed, Ken shuts down, doesn't know how to function, and just goes to the sink and woefully washes out his water glass. When you play such a lost, listing, loveless human being, how do you keep the unravelling paste and paint in shades of nuance and not just become one note, a bit like sadness in Inside Out?
1: (laughs) I think it goes back to trying not to perform anything. I'm not trying to Oh, this scene, this shade of this or this gradation of that. I'm not prescribing anything. That scene, which actually brings up a lot of feeling in me when I even hear you talk about it. Um, I was dreading doing that scene. I asked when we shot it, if we could just shoot it. I didn't want to go in the house until there was a camera with me. And I didn't want to meet his parents and his uncle. You walk into that house, just the neighborhood itself, you just know what these people's lives are like. The house had a certain smell to it. There were pictures of him on the wall. For me, part of what, when I talk about risk, part of it is in a certain way of working, which is literally not allowing yourself to know what's going to happen. Not giving yourself the security of, I'm gonna go in there, I'm gonna sit here, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. Or the way I think some actors or some directors work, where you can sort of prescribe, you know, on this line, I'm gonna wash a cup. Or on this line, I'm gonna have an emotion. I guess I just don't believe in that and I'm not interested in that. One of my favorite painters is Francis Bacon. In this book of interviews, over the course of 40 years, he said, if I have any ability as a painter, It's a direct result of my openness to accident and chance. I find that exciting. Sometimes when I think acting is too hard or painful or too heavy on me, the thought of that, not knowing what might happen, anything could happen, that's what makes me wanna act. So walking into that house, I just sort of had a different experience every time. Usually the first few times you film it is the most authentic. And then your actor brain starts to take over and have ideas or start to try to control things. But I find that you discover a really authentic experience that brings the writing alive if you sneak it in before you start to plan or control anything. But that scene gutted me. It gutted me.
2: Because you were living it. And one of the magical elements of Succession is that there is comedy with suffering and suffering least with comedy like the greek mass of talia and melpomene no better example of that than l to the og l to the og dude be the og and he playing one day your dad nearly breaks you by forcing you to meet the parents of a man you accidentally killed. The next, you turn around and publicly perform a hip hop tribute about just how amazing your dad is. I mean, was this a last act of desperate self-effacement to prove yourself? Or was it something that Kendall, always in cool, always trying too hard, huge Beastie Boys fanboy as he is, would have volunteered to do regardless?
1: I think probably the latter. I think Kendall has an ability as we all do, as I know I certainly do to compartmentalize. I think when you've grown up in a household in which there is abuse, you come to associate and recognize forms of abuse as forms of love. They become indistinguishable. So I think that that is all a real Gordian knot for Kendall. And yet, still, he wants his father to see him. He wants his father's affection and love and approval.
2: It's impossible to deny Kendall... Kendall's bloody good.
1: A1 ratings, 80K1, never gonna stop. But
2: As Roman quips, he's Ken WA, and I love this quote of yours. It's part of the high he's on, the ebullient fist pumping energy. It's the desperation of a drowning man, not waving, but drowning, but Kendall. Kendall thinks he's waving.
1: And no thinks he's waving. No, I thought about that. That's D.B. Smith poem. And that's right. Part of the line that the show walks, and I think that I walk, although I'm not consciously thinking about this at all, but I think it walks this line between waving and drowning. The character is, I would say, always drowning on some level. And yet... Finds in himself a will to live and a will to power, and a, something sort of almost bombastic in him that makes him experience drowning as waving. He tries so hard. I would say that's the thing about Kendall that I personally relate to. He tries so hard, and you know, he overshoots the mark. And he tries so hard with the rap. So don't try to run your mouth at the king. Just pucker up, bitch, and go kiss the ring. L to the OG. And I'm not going to lie, I tried so hard too, you know. And I think that's where it lives. It had to.
2: When you were up there, were you enjoying that? Was that was that a giddy release? Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: Personally, I think I felt quite foolish and like this could be the end of me. And I felt like I might just be making it giant fool of myself. But I also felt because the character never has a release, because Kendall is not very expressive, it is very internal, and it's a very controlled place to be. So to have that release and to have that platform did feel liberating for me. You know, the show kind of does this incredible dovetailing between the absurd and the painful and the pathos of that. But I guess the thing is, as an actor, you're not thinking about that. You can't play the pathos of something. You can't play the absurdity or the pain of something. You have to play the attempt at whatever it is you're doing. So in that scene, my only job is to give my father this gift at a celebration of 50 years in his business. And so I tried to do
2: that. I once wrote a book about bar mitzvahs of the 1980s. Amazing. And it was straight out of that. Well, yeah. It was a 13-year-old kind of Kendall thinking he was Slick Rick, having that moment that you'd always dreamed about, which led to the season two finale, the press conference coup de grace. Logan has told Kendall he's to be the blood sacrifice to protect Waystar Royko because...
1: You're not a killer. You have to be a
2: killer. That line, Kendall's the one man in the show who has quite literally killed someone. Then your character pivots, morphs from sad boy into a whistle blowing killer, launching an all out war on his old man. Why is Kendall now ready to kill?
1: Probably my most honest answer would be, I don't know. I obviously needed for myself for it to be very, very clear as to why and where the turns on the dial happen, exactly where they happen. And so for me, which might not be for Jesse or Mylod, our director, you're not a killer is something that my dad said to me in the pilot episode. He said something tantamount to that. You know, sometimes it is a big dick competition and that I'm not ready. I'm not up for it. You know, I'm not, alpha enough, I don't know how to dominate. I know that he thinks that about me. It doesn't mean that it doesn't grate me to hear him say that again, it did. But for me, there was some further element that in the early drafts was absent. And so Jesse and I had a lot of exchange about this. I felt like we had a bullet and a firing pin, but we needed a hammer. To me, the hammer had to do with something my father says when he ties no real person involved to the boy. At this point, I do think I deserve it. I think I am very much planning to be the blood sacrifice as an act of penitence and atonement for my crimes. I think that I deserve to take the fall. And then my father slips in this one comment about this boy who I didn't really know, but who I don't live a day without feeling immense sorrow for what I did. And my father says no real person involved. He's denied ever saying NRPI. And then in that scene, he very casually, when I say I deserve it, and my father says no real person involved. And that to me is where something changed.
2: You've compared this transformational moment to the scene from The Godfather where Michael Corleone sees his bride's car blown up in Sicily. That moment, he's ready to go back and be a killer because whatever final vestiges of his humanity and his capacity for love or tenderness have been destroyed, how did it feel to play that press conference scene?
1: You know, I know that my father is a bastard. I know that he's a monster. I know that he's abusive. But up until that point, I don't think I have seen that my father is, for lack of a better word, evil. And so that's something that once I saw that, once I saw the gorgon head of that, there was no going back. And I think a sudden clarity descended on me and I knew what I had to do. And it wasn't even out of malice or vindication, it was out of just suddenly it became clear to me. And it's as if, you know, when Hamlet comes back in act five, you know, and he's been through what he's been through. When he has this sort of clarity about things, let be the readiness is all. I feel like Kendall has this actual peace descends on him. So that the press conference for me wasn't a fuck you dad. It was almost like my dad is dead to me. And... It's my turn. And this is what I should have done a long time ago. But for whatever reasons, I didn't have the ability or the inner power to do it until this moment. But I think I'd earned that power finally. And now I think the exciting question is how am I gonna wield that power? And how is that position of power going to affect my psyche and either fill a hole in me or not fill that hole in me? Because I'm an addict. On the show and I think my ambition has become a form of that a substitute for using and a sort of addiction to power and as we all know there's no there there so Jesse and I have been talking about Fitzgerald's book The Crack Up. I don't know what season three has in store yet but I know in terms of the character's psyche it's going to be a very different Kendall than the Kendall we've seen before.
2: Jeremy It's nearly a year since you last played Kendall Roy, or more accurately, lived Kendall Roy. Do you miss him?
1: Yeah, I do, I'll say that I do. I miss the way he makes me feel, (laughs) which is a crazy thing to say. But I also miss the expansiveness and the freedom that one feels when you're working. I miss the drug of acting and the compulsion and obsession with acting is because it's a place where you can be free. That Agassiz hitting the ball perfectly, for me, it's moments where I am actually free. Free of myself, you feel like you lose time, you reach a place of freedom that you don't normally experience in your normal life, or I do. I miss, in a way, the clarity of this character and of his struggle. Obviously we're all going through this time where we're sort of navigating without any orientation equipment. And I find myself in the middle of something that I don't understand, which is actually quite like playing Kendall. So maybe I'm not too far from him after all. And at the same time, those memories, those experiences are in me. They're not a facsimile of experiences. They were real experiences. So it's not like it's gone anywhere. I know that I'll be able to
2: suit up again. Last question for you Jeremy Strong. If you met Kendall Roy and you are clearly deeply empathetic you, you you also clearly have a black belt in psychology. What would you say to him? What would your life advice be? Your wisdom. I think I would
1: say it's not your fault. I think it's from Winter's Tale. He says a lack our frailty is the cause not we. We're such as we are made, if such we be. I think these kids walk around carrying this sense that something's wrong with them and they're trying so hard to do whatever they think they need to do to right themselves. If I'd met Kendall, I think i wish that I could give him some kind of salve to that turmoil. I want to give him a hug, you know?
2: (laughs) That that Carl Young quote, though that you dropped at the top. Only that which is really ourselves has the power to heal. That feels apropos for Kendall too. Jeremy Strong, thank you for your sacrifice and the meaning that it's brought to the world. Courage.
1: Thanks, Roger. Bye.
2: We will be back next week. Until then, here's some Pete Kendall Roy.
1: My father is a malignant presence, a bully and a liar, And he was fully personally aware of these events for many years and made efforts to hide and cover up but i think this is the day his reign ends i'll be providing the documents and can answer any questions you may have in the coming days thank you very much